Hello and welcome to Times Tall Tales. Today, myself and Jordan are going to take you through geomythology, which kind of is what it says on the tin. Um, it's myths about specific locations. A very famous example would be Atlantis. So, apart from Atlantis, have you heard of any other maybe mythical locations, Jordan? Well, I have heard of El Dorado. Yes, Lost City of Gold. I have heard of... Nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. I mean, obviously, the, the most famous one that comes to mind is Atlantis. Um, I, I am going to talk a bit about Atlantis, more specifically the, the reality. Is the, is the Bermuda Triangle a geomorph? Um... That's a good question, actually. Because it is technically a place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess you could call it a geomyth. Uh, maybe it, it's more of an anomaly, like a geo-anomaly, yeah. rather okay. than a myth, I guess. I don't know, I could be entirely wrong. You know, it's, we are I would, not qualified I would... <laughs> to answer that question. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> However many researching hours on Google does not make me qualified in any way, shape or form. Um, but what I find quite interesting about geomyths is uh, the reality behind them. Because there is, there is some reality behind quite a lot of the geomyths. And I mean, obviously, yeah. Atlantis we know as you know, being a myth, but there are quite a lot of other stories from around the world that are based on realities. So before I go exploring the depths of reality then, uh, I think first we need to establish the most popular myth, Atlantis. So Atlantis was a fictional island created by Plato in an allegory on the hubris of nations, essentially. So Atlantis was meant to represent the antagonistic naval power that besieges ancient Athens, which is actually a pseudo-historic embodiment of Plato's ideal state in Socrates' The Republic. Now, the story goes that Athens repels the Atlantean attack unlike any other nation of the unknown world essentially to show the power of Plato's ideal state. The story ends with Atlantis falling out of favour with the gods, who then send a battalion of fire and earthquakes and all manner of terrible things that essentially sank the kingdom of Atlantis deep into the ocean. Now, this myth has captivated imaginations for thousands of years. There are tons of theories, of course, as to where the kingdom was, some of the most hot, popular hotspots are in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Spain, and even under Antarctica. I quite like that one. I think it's quite cool to think there's a massive city hidden under that Antarctica. Is <laughs> quite a popular idea um, I found while doing some research is that Atlantis can be associated with Syra, the now Greek island of uh, Santorini, which is also part of. So bad right now. <laughs> well, you know, if there wasn't. Well, we weren't, if we weren't allowed to leave the UK, you know, yeah. that, would, that would be a nice um, place. When the pandemic's to. gone, <laughs> yeah, then. Positivity. But yeah, so there is the, actually the idea there of linking it to a real place, the island of Santorini, which actually was also partly destroyed by a volcanic eruption just under 4,000 years ago. In reality, however, scientists think that Atlantis can never really be tied to a real location. It is, and most likely will remain a mythical site. It's like now, Neverland. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Just a bit more warry. Um, and realy. 
No, this is a good couple of thousand years ago. Yeah. So, according to Plato, now this is the bit that I find quite interesting. According to Plato, Atlantis was bigger than Libya and Asia combined. Now, this actually refers to modern-day northern Africa and over half of Turkey. Now, if a landmass this large did sink, surely it would show up on some kind of map. There would yeah. be a sonar map somewhere that would pick up modern-day northern Africa under the sea. But, you know, they always say something like 80% of the sea is still unexplored, so never say never, in the words of Justin Bieber. Or whatever. <laughs> oh, oh dear, that was one of the worst references I've made. Uh, <laughs> moving on quickly. <laughs> <laughs> moving on quickly from my embarrassment. The idea of Atlantis as a utopia, which is one we quite often see in the movies, is actually the responsibility of a former US congressman. He published a book on Atlantis in 1882. This was by Ignatius Donnelly, and he laid out about 13 different hypotheses. 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 Yes, that's the one. Hypotheses. (laughs) Okay, we'll get there in the end. I'm not not saying a degree in English language, all right? There's a reason for that. He centred on the idea that Atlantis was real and was representative of mankind living in peace and happiness, which is clearly not what Plato had in mind, um, making it the antagonist of the story. Donnelly, however, made Atlantis out to be the origin of numerous ancient civilizations, and by following Plato's writing, he believed the city could be found. Now, if you remember in the early days of our degree, Jordan, the story of Heinrich Schliemann, who thought he yes. could discover Troy using Homer's The Iliad. It kind of, and there's dynamite. a bit of a theme. <laughs> yeah, and dynamite. This Donnelly doesn't seem to be using dynamite quite as trigger happily as Schliemann does. <laughs> um, but there's similar elements there of trying to use ancient writings to find not so real places, shall we say. To reign on our parade, then, is Patrick Nunn, a geologist at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. I think we're going to say Barbara Streisand, then, but... No! (laughs) No, unfortunately, Patrick Nunn says, with no doubt, that Atlantis is a myth. However, Atlantis is not the only sunken city in the Book of Legends. There are similar tales told all over the world for centuries. In terms of Atlantis, Nunn argues that Plato, who was actually living on a volcanically and tectonically active part of the world, where earthquakes and tsunamis were not uncommon, essentially observed the world around him to make his amazing narratives more credible. But in reality, it isn't a real place. It is just linked from events around them, which is, you know, there is some reality behind the myth then, is that maybe a massive city-state didn't delve into the ocean, but, you know, some were definitely destroyed by them. Now, Nunn is actually part of a budding new discipline called geomythology, the term I used at the start. Um, Dorothy Vitellanio, in 1966, was the first one to define the term as the science of seeking to find the real geological events underlying a myth or legend to which is given rise. And there are plenty of geomyth to study, as the ancients love a good catastrophic tale, as do we nowadays. <laughs> so, the first of the other lost islands I want to look at. Now, I have to put a warning out. 
these pronunciations are what I am pronouncing them as. They may not be correct, and I apologise in advance. <laughs> That's your warning. I've said it here and now. So the first island I want to look at is the substantial Highland Island of Teunamanu. It was in the Solomon Islands of the South Pacific, and there's a very unfortunate tale that comes along with it. It begins with the cuckolded husband, Roramonu, whose wife, Sawawetau, moved to live with another man on the island of Teunamanu. Enraged, he bought a wave curse, which is a thing, a wave curse as a revenge. Can you get me one of those? Can you get me one? <laughs> Go back in time a couple of thousand years, then maybe. So with his, wa- with his uh, wave curse, he travelled to the island where his lover has now moved to, with four waves attached to the front of his canoe and four at the rear. Now, this doesn't literally mean the man had four tsunamis following him. It's You've got to use your imagination for this one. Oh, well, that would make a very good visual. <laughs> oh, someone, someone's painting that somewhere. There'll, there'll be yeah. depictions of it somewhere. Now, once he was on land, he planted two taro plants, which are a, a root vegetable kind of crop. He then kept another one for himself and quickly retreated home to his home island of Aliite. Now, according to the curse, when the leaves sprouted on his taro plant, disaster would hit Teunamanu. Now, Roramonu watched from a mountaintop as the eight waves that he brought on his canoe surged the island one by one until it sank and never resurfaced. That is quite the revenge story. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, it kind of killed a lot of people for no reason, but... (laughs) Well, like you said, they they love the flair for the dramatic, isn't it? Now, yeah. what's quite and interesting... Homicide. <laughs> yeah, we'll gloss over that part. <laughs> what's quite interesting, actually, is in reality, what this story is describing is a tsunami train, which is basically what it says on the tin. It's a tsunami consisting of numerous waves. Now, obviously, waves don't just wash away islands, particularly of the substantial nature of Teunamanu. It was likely that a seafloor earthquake actually took the island, which was on the edge of a very steep undersea slope. Tremors likely shook the foundations and a large landslide carried the island under, generating a tsunami train in the process. So if you think about it, it's kind of the other way around. The collapse of the city brought the tsunamis, not the tsunamis bringing the collapse of the city. But the people who survived told the tale that they knew. And this is how geomyths can form from realities. There was actually an event of this island sinking. They just kind of told it in the wrong order. There are plenty of geomyths, however, that are more likely linked to mass population loss rather than loss of land itself. A lot of scientists are actually really sceptical about the possibility of entire islands being able to sink beneath the sea. But none actually points out the amount of material moved in some large landslides is not that much less than an island like Teunamanu. However, in the case of Teunamanu, surveys of this seafloor actually have shown evidence of numerous other islands further down the slope as well. So clearly, islands can disappear, you know? Hmm. It's all made up. Now, if you're wondering where a lot of these geomyths come from, you should know that there are tons of sources. There are 
a lot of places you can go and redo this. I've spent far too long on this one. <laughs> now, one that I really want to talk about is the Sanskrit text. Again, apologies for any pronunciation. They were written on palm leaves, which includes the longest epic poem, the Mahabharata, from about 4,000 years ago. One of the tales in the poems tells how Lord Krishna, from the Hindu religion, was conducting his earthly business in the city of Dwarka, which actually means gateway to heaven, so very convenient for a god. <laughs> now, after winning a battle, he left the city and returned to his heavenly abode. However, shortly after, the Arabian Sea submerged the city of Dwarka. The most interesting part, however, is the city is, was regarded as nothing more than a mythical kingdom until an archaeological excavation discovered it intact first in the 1930s under the sea on India's Suracha, Suracha, Suracha coast. Again, apologies. <laughs> I, I can't do pronunciation today or any day, it appears. They were found on, on the sea of India's coast, but work didn't actually start till much later on. Currently, the city of Dwarka is about 36 metres underwater and could be over 9,000 years old. Now, it's most likely due to rising sea levels about 3,500 years ago that Dwarka sank. The poem says that Dwarka had hundreds of thousands of royal palaces all constructed with silver and crystal and decorated with emeralds. This was a very Let me guess. Note. It's not real. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> now, it's interesting that you say that. Don't tell me it's real, because if it is, that is... <laughs> this is like... You never find that. <laughs> it kind of is. So, what's been traced so far... Now, they, um, there have been, you know, it's, it's one of the best explored sites underwater in India. And what has been uh, traced so far actually confirms that the city is this amazing. Like, it's this grand. It's supposed to have been built on six blocks, two on the right bank, four on the left. And they have found this outline. Unfortunately, though, for this incredible city, its size and beauty is actually its downfall. And it meant excavations were just too expensive and they were likely stopped due to money and labour shortages. And the last survey was conducted in 2007. So we don't actually know the extent of the sunken city of Dwarka, but it looks pretty cool. You know, it's very... That sounds very cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to find a real looking Atlantis, Hundreds and thousands of crystal palaces isn't too far behind. <laughs> Head to India. Yeah. So that's one of my favourite stories. Now, another one that I'm quite interested in is part of the Australian Aboriginal stories, which just shows how far the tradition of geomyths can travel around the world. Now, the Aboriginal stories, while seeming figurative usually, actually recall rising sea levels from about 20,000 years ago, which swallowed up large chunks of Australian land. The stories tell of kangaroo hunting grounds disappearing into the sea, but there are also more elaborate tales. One of my favourites that I found was supposedly the ancestral character of Ungarundi, 
chased his wives who sought refuge on Kangaroo Island. And in his anger, he called the seas to rise and separated the island completely from the mainland and the women were turned into a rock. Well, all of them were turned into rocks that now just sort of jut out of the water. These stories have been passed down 300 or 400 generations even. Like, I cannot that comprehend is that. <laughs> that. And is... especially, I'd, they didn't have a, a writing system, did they? So, nope. nope. This is so survived is... oral tradition. Exactly. And there was actually a really interesting inquiry made into how myths can carry through life. And previously, right, scientists thought that oral tradition could only last about 800 years without some form of written down word. This one, however, has lasted three or four hundred generations. That is quite a considerable amount of years, shall we say. How many years ago did you say this was? Um, we don't actually know when it started, um, but it's, it's very, very, very old. <laughs> no, and you said like, how old the um, the sea was rising how many years ago? Oh, uh, about 20,000 years ago is likely um, the time period that it's recalling the, the sea rises from. The ones so where it's like the... 20,000 years of oral tradition. Yeah, so there, there are stories that are that old. The one of Ungarindi, I don't actually know how old that one is, um, but they're, you know, they're a geomist dating back to... Because that is like... Years ago. It's very old. <laughs> yeah. I can't so, even remember what I did this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so to be honest, Dave, to be able to remember 20,000 years ago, or at least stories of 20,000 years ago. But I mean, as you know, with oral tradition, things change over time. It becomes, you know, a different story to each generation almost. Yeah. Um, quite interestingly, uh, Nicholas Reed, he's a ling- uh, linguist at the University of New England, believes that indigenous storytelling culture is actually backed up by a cross-generational cross-checking system. Now this kind of makes it a little bit more plausible, even if just like a little bit. So in this process, a father will pass down the story to his children, and then their nephews and nieces are responsible for ensuring the ch- children know the stories cor- uh, correctly. So it's like it's an entire family responsibility to make sure oral tradition lasts and like it's a huge community project to keep all these stories alive which is just very cool like it makes it me very shows the emphasis that sto- uh, the importance that stories really had to some people yeah yeah and the interesting thing is about um in the case of the australian geomist the the isolation of australia may have also contributed to their survival it's because the stories are often about losing land and it's you know it's land where generations have lived so losing it had major impact on people's lives so you know they're bound to remember it like you know we're bound to remember this last year kind of thing because it had (laughs) such a major impact on us we're not gonna forget it soon yeah now one of the big issues facing oral tradition is the new generation not learning their native tongues in the Aboriginal and Pacific Island communities. So the future for these geomyths, if they aren't collectively written down in the near future, is not really looking very bright. An interesting importance that actually emerged from geomyths, and this, these kind of geomyths in particular, is their attention to the endangerment 
that they've brought to life, like rising sea levels. It's geomists that have made climate change a part of these communities and they've learned how to adapt their lives and live with a changing world. It's like the earliest signs of awareness of climate change and that we are they are actually acknowledging it as part of what they've gone through in their life. It's very interesting. It's very important. They just show you well. the similarities between modern humans and past humans. Yeah, I mean, t- 20,000 years ago, to think they're facing the same problems that we have nowadays is... Although not yeah, as bad. <laughs> Although actually, there's severe climate yeah, change but... around that time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's well, that one was natural. <laughs> yeah, that one was natural, and the other oh. is... Uh, our fault. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you had a just a convenient glacial maximum going on, but uh, yeah, so it, it's quite interesting to see how how important these you know stories actually are, and a really important part of geomyths for us as modern people is that they are a form of validation for geological events that we simply wouldn't know about otherwise. The the city of Duarca that I mentioned earlier, for example was only sought after to find a basis for the myth. It's actually due to storytelling and mythology that we can even begin to know where to look for these great settlements of the past, like Troy with Heimich Schliemann or Atlantis, for example. So while some of these geomyths are simple, pure fictions, basically, those that are based in fact and provide a really, really useful impact on modern investigators actually do help us try and piece together what was once our world, both physically and socially. So and are... essentially, the, they are fictional, but they have real-world consequences, I suppose you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of other geomists I could battle on about, but, you know, I'll save those for another day. Um, the, the ones that I mentioned to you here, I mean, Atlantis, for example, is fictional. It, it I will say it now, it is fictional. But it's quite an interesting example of what was believed to be we will you know, correct the... we will correct this uh, if atlantis is found in a few years <laughs> if atlantis is found tomorrow i'll, we'll I'll do come a correction in episode for the moment atlantis is fictional but what it does actually represent is the antagonist in the eyes of plato so it's quite an interesting looking you know not necessarily the physical world, but the social world. You know, this is what was the negative compared to the glory that was ancient Athens. Obviously, Athens is real, as far as I'm aware. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a really interesting comparison to make between Atlantis, which is fictional, and Athens that is real. So, you know, if we are comparing the two, who's to say that Atlantis isn't real and that we're all talking rubbish? <laughs> I guess in the terms then of like, actually helping understand geologically our world the stories of um the aboriginals it is very interesting to see how completely different the the physical world would have been and also what was of importance to them so the the social what was needed to be conveyed socially throughout time to make sure people remembered what was there and not just you know oh we can forget that kangaroo plane or whatever they wanted to remember it and you know to pass it down 400 generations you've got to want something you know you're not just gonna yeah uh, we'll give up after a hundred no you you keep going which is very impressive 
So essentially, the uh, big takeaways from today are, you know, here we go. Mythology and history have uh, real-world consequences on other disciplines like geology, geography, so on. Mm. Uh, and essentially, you should watch Atlantis: The Lost Empire from two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Great film. Uh, watched it. We are in no way sponsored, but I, I yeah. still agree with that. It is it is very accurate. I mean, there is a place underwater where people have magic crystals. That's true. <laughs> well, when when lockdown I'm ends, joking. I'm just just, just to no no that's that's definitely not real. For now, for now, growth mindset. For now, yeah, for now, we'll correct it as I say. Yeah. Well. Again, you know, there's if you are interested in geomyths, obviously do go and check it out. It is still quite a new discipline. It's something that I didn't really know huge much about until I started researching this. You know, I just started off googling "Is Atlantis real?" and here we are. <laughs> don't watch, please. However many. Don't watch no uh, ancient alien stuff because don't don't do that. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear. Well, you never know. You never, never say never again. I'll stop doing that now. Um, but yes, the geomyths are important. I, I guess that's the thing I want to get across. Geomyths are important. Yeah. And I think there's a very negative connotation that comes along with saying myth. Because you instantly think it's completely fictional. You know, like, you, you think of the traditional mythologies, like Greek mythology and Norse mythology. It tends to be you know, gods in very grand palaces doing dubious things to mortals and with mortals, typically if it's Greek and mythology. And typically if it's Zeus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But there are there are some realities behind them, especially in geomythology. I think it's 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 difficult to not just class all mythology as sort of, you know, fictional stories made for social ruling, but Geomythology can be really important, and you know, it's really for example, things like the city of Dwarf. Yeah, and there is, you know, there is some reality behind them, of course, like the city of Dwarf, which unfortunately, who knows when that's going to be properly excavated. It could be, you know, it's one of the best explored sites in India, which is kind of sad, almost to think that there's just there's there's not enough money and labour to go into discovering yeah. it all. I mean, that uh, goes to a lot of archaeological sites so around the world. Yeah, unfortunately, it is funding is a really, really big problem yeah. in specifically, I think, in marine archaeology because it's just that much harder to get to it. Like, it's and it has it's just a lot that more bit dangerous more as well. Difficult. Yeah, and things you know don't really preserve that well in water as they would, you know, in a dry desert kind of thing. You know, there's a reason why we still have the pyramids and barely have any shipwrecks, kind of thing. Like, it's there is there is reason behind it, but uh, yes, there are of course other geomyths. Please do you know research further if you want to. I know I definitely will, but I will stop rambling now and uh, say, do you have anything else you would like to ask or comment? Um, not really. I'd just like to reiterate that you watch Atlantis Lost Empire. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> Priorities. Yes. Um, no, no more comments. <laughs> I'll shut up now. Wonderful. Well, 
Thank you very much for listening to us ramble on. Um, and hopefully we will see you next time. So goodbye for Bye. now. <laughs>